Welcome back to the VMP Anthology Podcast, celebrating the story and the legendary music of Cadet Records. I'm your host, Stephen Anderson. On the final episode of our 16th season, we'll discuss the remaining albums in your box. We'll explore how they exemplify the label's scrappy jazz roots from their Argo years, as well as Cadet's try-anything-once philosophy, and how that risk-taking spirit offered its artists exciting new beginnings, even as the company crumbled in the late 60s and early 70s. Even though Cadet formally began in 1965, you may have noticed that the bulk of the albums in the box are from a single year in the label's history, 1968. That's no coincidence. Chess's move to their new headquarters effectively halted new releases being recorded for the better part of a year, and by the time they settled into 320 East 21st Street in 1967, the company was eager to make up for lost time. Although Leonard Chess had begun to focus more on developing the handful of radio stations that he and his brother Phil owned, he was dead set on Etta James's next album producing hits. So when Chess's brand new creative factory struggled to provide the goods, Leonard personally accompanied her down to swampy Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to record with Rick Hall and the legendary musicians at Fame Studios. The sales manager of Chess at that time, I want to give him due credit, was named Max Cooperstein. He uh, he was uh, you know a real record man as well, and he handled the sales and promotion. And um, he was friends with Rick Hall from Fame, and and uh, Spooner Oldham and all those guys because he used to go down south all the time. And we knew very much, oh, we were real good friends with Joe Galkin, who was managing Otis Redding. I used to sit in the hotel room in Memphis, Otis Redding singing, not sitting on the dresser, singing to me. Yes, sirree. Joe Galkin, this white Jewish guy, was his manager. So they all knew about that whole, you know, that was the Spooner Oldham. Those were the guys from the fame band. And uh, in a meeting, Max suggested, let's send Etta down to Rick Hall and cut some songs. So they sent Etta down, and my dad went down for the sessions. And Etta said, your daddy came to me in Muscle Shoals. He has the most beautiful blonde girl with him. I said, great. That's what you're telling me. And I go, you know. <laughs> no, I already knew my father. Believe me, I already was very aware of that era of the record men and their paramours you know my uncle you know all of them had but they loved their families you know but you know they had no problem having a good time um but my dad went down and then of course he, he cut those great sides and uh, boom that was an instant that was a big that was a right hit you know i mean that was just one of those things that gelled but i'll tell you one that didn't gel that you've never heard so i was i had a short time friendship with paul simon <laughs> You're gonna love this fucking story. My lawyer was named Mike Tannen. Mike Tannen was a young lawyer. He was the first music and one of the the key music entertainments first ones in New York was Ornstein, Arrow, and Silverman. A Harold Ornstein. He was like the dean of the entertainment lawyers in New York City. They had a young lawyer out of law school named Mike Tannen. He became my lawyer. He did my contract with the Rolling Stones. Prior to that. While I was still at chess, Paul Simon was part of that firm. And I had known Paul Simon well enough that when he they were in L.A., him and Garfunkel, they called me for gospel albums. When they were writing Bridge Over Trouble Water, I brought them the chess gospel albums to their house in Beverly Hills when they were writing. <laughs> so, yeah, I brought them those albums. So Paul and I hit it off. Two young Jewish guys, same age. He was a love the chess artist, you know. 
And uh, he loved Etta James. And I had asked him if he could write some songs for Etta James. And we set up a session at Sun Studios. I knew Sam Phillips's kids. In, you know, and I set it up at Sun Studios, man, with Etta and their musicians, the Sun Rhythm Section, to record Etta. And Etta met me in Memphis. And Paul was there with guitar trying to teach her the songs. And she OD'd on second alls or barbiturates and fell asleep in the studio while Paul was trying to teach her the song. And he had a fucking temper tantrum and left and went home. <laughs> and years later, man, 15 years later, she called me. Marshall, where are those fucking Paul Simons tapes? I said, Anna, <laughs> never happened. Yeah, that's a true story. I don't even know what the song is. He never got to even sing it. He was sitting there. She, nah, you know, out. He got pissed off. He flown from New York. Da, 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 da. He was all excited. And, he, you know, he's also like a diva, you know, so he, uh, he divid right out. And I sat there like, oh, fuck. It's thrilling to imagine what might have come from the Paul Simon Etta James sessions. But for a label that built itself as a world of excitement, the releases that did see the light of day on Cadet Records could sound just as wild as anything listeners could possibly imagine. Up next in the box is Dorothy Ashby's electrifying debut on Cadet, 1968's Afro Harping. had been signed by one of Cadet's rising producers, Richard Evans, who had recently netted a major success on Cadet with the album Groovin' with the Soulful Strings, which merged R&B and jazz rhythms with chamber music instrumentation and unique arrangements of contemporary pop and rock songs. Evans persuaded Ashby to come to Chicago from her home in Detroit to record a similar set of classically inspired jazz at Terramar. Even though Marshall was fully immersed in the far-out sounds of the period, he still remembers feeling dumbfounded at the sight of a harp in the studio. You know, when you talk about Dorothy Ashby, I can remember that. I mean, she was like an angel on a harp. I mean, you know, I remember the session. I was at one of the, I don't remember if it was Afro Harp, and I, don't, I just remember the weirdness of it, to see a harp. I never, that was what I saw angels in, in drawings. Uh, that was something very special for us. And, you know, we knew it was a very special thing. But we were already at that era. Chess was always at the era of willing to try new things. So that was fully accepted as a good, as a real try. Eric, you could, you could hear the brilliance of it, you know? Marshall's right. In 1968, Charles Stepney and Richard Evans were stepping into their new roles as cadets in-house producers, and they were quick to make a name for themselves helming hit records for the Dells and the Soulful Strings. But although Evans is credited as the supervisor for the next record in the box, the Harold Land Quintet's The Peacemaker, it's a notable departure from the maximalist arrangement style that would become Evans' signature.
Oddly, the Peacemaker stands out all the more within Cadet's late 60s jazz catalog precisely because it's a relatively straightforward post-bop record. All the same, I wasn't surprised to hear Marshall say that he was unfamiliar with the album. Recorded during a couple of dates in the winter of 1967 and 1968 in Los Angeles, the Peacemaker's only apparent ties to Cadet were the credits for Evan's supervision and the design by Jerry Griffith, who laid out much of the label's album art at the time. It's impossible to say for certain, but it's most likely that someone offered Richard Evans a deal on the Peacemaker's master tapes during a talent scouting trip. Who could say no when all a record needed to go to market was album art, especially when it was this good? In a way, the Peacemaker serves not only as a reminder of Cadet's more straight-ahead roots from its Argo days, but also as a foil for the uniquely heady jazz sound that Evans was honing in the new Terramar Studios. In our previous episode, we heard Marshall Chess liken Electric Mud to a movie in which Muddy Waters was acting, rather than a true blue Muddy Waters solo album like, say, 1964's Folk Singer. At the end of 1968, after attempting the same approach with Howlin' Wolf to a similarly polarizing outcome, Marshall figured he'd give the formula one more shot with another familiar figure around the chess studios, jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis. Only this time, the inspiration came from the other side of the world. So. On one of my early uh, hashish trips to Tangier, Morocco, um, in the early days when that was one of the stops on the hippie trail was to go to Morocco. And, you know, you'd go to these places where you could smoke hashish and they'd come with these sweets. You know, the guy would come in selling sweets and you drink this mint tea. And in one of the bazaars, and I was very much into the early Stones, early Beatles. I was right in that period. And then... One of the rug bizarres, I go in, what is that? What is that? And it's a Beatles album, but it's at the wrong speed. But I knew it was the Beatles. And I said, oh, my God, they're getting off on playing the Beatles. That's how strong this Beatles wave had crossed to younger people. I mean, it wasn't that they played it on purpose. They had a fucking old, horrible turntable that wasn't properly, the bell wasn't right or something. So it was off, you know. So... When when we when we used to sit around with Ramsey talking about you know tunes, I would always bring up stuff like that. I'd say, well, there's such a giant. It's in you know it's in the in the ether of the world. Beatles, you know, uh, you know, think about play the Beatles, see what you feel, see if anything comes to you. We used to always look for certain tunes, but that was my my inspiration was. Um, that 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 the it was in the white consciousness Beatles songs that that hearing an instrumental version would bring up the lyric in the you know in your head because everyone heard those Beatles tunes you know and uh, and uh, he bought into it you know he was very much into picking uh, a young white guy's brain to something that might make sense he definitely was I think he would admit that you know we had that kind that was sort of my my old contribution, I would always be telling what was happening on that scene. But I saw the explosion of, you know, Beatles, Stones, and the whole rock and roll, the whole, across the whole world. I mean, even before I went with the Rolling Stones. The timing of Ramsey Lewis's plan to pay tribute to the Beatles seemed to cosmically align with the release of the White Album in November of 1968. And so, with 30 brand new Beatles songs to pick from and some seriously sharp arrangements in production from Charles Stepney, Mother Nature's son was born. 
The album remains one of the most notable outliers in Lewis's immense discography, not least of which for the extensive use of one of the first commercially available Moog synthesizers. In fact, Lewis and Stepney's use of the Moog predated the Beatles' own application of the instrument on Abbey Road months later. And just as an aside, for those looking to scratch the highly specific itch for other early Moog records released on chess, look no further than the Zeet Band's 1970 album Moogie Woogie, which features the likes of Phil Upchurch and Donny Hathaway. It's a trip. By the time The Shades of Brown's first and only album, S.O.B., was released in April of 1970, Chess was a completely different company than it had been even just a year before. The sale of Chess's assets to General Recorded Tape, or GRT, was finalized in January of 1969, and Leonard and Phil had hoped that the handoff would allow them to focus more on growing their radio and TV ventures. During that whole time, towards the middle of Cadetney, and my father was enamored with the radio business. He had this WVON voice of the Negro, the first modern, really black, you know, first black news director in America, uh, those kind of things. He was really, he, what we were going for and why he sold Chess Records was to start black television in Chicago. It just, it, which was, I mean, you know, 10 years, 12 years ahead of BET, you know, which would have been revolutionary. But uh, it never, it never, it, you know, and then he died. And then, you know, he didn't have a will and they did the company that bought chess just months before they didn't they didn't trust me. I was too young. They didn't know they were from the Sunnyvale, California. I heard some New York EMI, big major guy uh, to, to come in who didn't understand the indie. He didn't understand creating. We were a creative company. You know, that was the seed. That was everything about it. jazz and all the labels. It was about the creative part of it, you know. Um, we knew that, that the better you created, the more money you made, and the artists really cared about money more than art. All of the artists that I ever met, they wanted hits, you know, airplay, you know. Uh, you know, it was never about, I want to come here to make art. Like, you know, it wasn't about that. Um, it was about hits. And I think that happened very quickly to my family. They realized the best stuff sold them all. Everyone got satisfied. And as that happened, we became enamored with good stuff. We got, you know, the more you do, the more you recognize, the more you, the feedback you get. But, you know, Cadet was definitely, we was definitely a growing thing. It was this, it was his, he became, he became bored with all the, uh, he was like the radio. It was a big blow to me, to be honest with you. But, you know, they, I was supposed to get a million bucks. Marshall had been promised a million dollars by Leonard as part of the windfall from Chess's sale to GRT, which the young Chess had earmarked to start a new label of his own. But Leonard's sudden death in October of 1969 wasn't only a tragedy, but it presented a logistical nightmare for his son as well. Because Leonard had died without a will, the money that Leonard set aside for Marshall was inaccessible. To make matters worse, the company's new management seized on the opportunity to wrest control from Phil and Marshall, pushing them into meaningless executive roles. By the spring of 1970, both of the remaining chesses had left the label that operated under their own name. Given the tumultuousness behind the scenes at chess, that SOB was released at all is something of a minor miracle. 
What could have been the label's next breakout R&B act, like the Dells before them, the Shades of Brown became little more than a footnote in the dustbin of soul music history. It's a shame, because each song on SOB points to a different direction the group could have taken towards stardom had they continued into the 70s. From glossy soul pop to hard-edged funk, it's not hard to imagine an alternate reality in which the Shades of Brown went on to be Soul Train regulars. On paper, much about Hey Love is bittersweet. It was the last cadet concept album recorded in Chicago before the sub-label was killed off in the wake of Marshall's departure from chess. And the notable inclusion of New, before the words Rotary Connection on the album's cover, signaled a kind of optimism that history tells us might have been misplaced. Thankfully though, the music within was the opposite of bittersweet. Instead, it stands as one of producer and bandleader Charles Stepney's crowning achievements of his time at cadet. Let me see. This is Rotary Connection. Okay, new Rotary Connection. So I left, and I knew that was happening. I was involved. I had talked to Charles, and when he sent me Black Gold from the Sun, that's the one he sent me, I flipped. That was brilliant fucking shit. He had really, both of them, they had taken it. I was so proud that I planted that seed, you know, and even though I had nothing to do with it, except I planted the seed to them, you know. Charles Stepney would stay on as a producer for Cadet right up until its closure in 1975. And although his tragic death the following year ended a brilliant musical career far too soon, Stepney's influence helped make stars of Minnie Riperton and Earth, Wind & Fire throughout the 70s. And, in case you're like me, jonesing for all the Charles Stepney music you can get your ears on, I implore you to seek out Step on Step, the collection of Stepney's archival material and home demos, compiled by his daughters and released by International Anthem in 2022. It's a funky and fascinating peek into the mind of a true musical genius. And for my opening line, I might try to indicate my state of mind. I turn you on. I tell you that I'm laughing just to keep from crying. Pretty music, when you hear it, keep on trying to get near it. A little rhythm for your spirit oh, But that's what it's for Come on in, here's the door and, I've seen a and so we come to the final album in the box Terry Callier's stunning Cadet Records debut, Occasional Rain Frankly, it's something of a marvel that Cadet was functional enough in 1972 to not only release Occasional Rain but its magnificent follow-up, What Color Is Love as well as Callier's excellent third album for the label I Just Can't Help Myself in 1973 while the Baroque swing of Ordinary Joe became a minor hit for Callier, the entire album really is a masterclass for the alchemical mixture of folk, blues, and soul music that he had hinted at on his debut album, The New Folk Sound of Terry Callier. But where his first album was composed entirely of traditional public domain songs, Occasional Rain showcases the vastness of Callier's artistic range, from his evocative lyrics to his deaf songwriting, and a velvety voice that could soothe one moment and howl the next. 
Callier's trilogy of albums for Cadet undoubtedly comprised the finest material released during the label's final years, and in a way, offer a clue to what the label could have accomplished in the 70s and beyond, had its course not changed so drastically in 1969. It's hard not to lament what could have been for the label had things turned out differently. But for nearly a decade there, Cadet Records really was a world of excitement all its own, full of thrilling musical twists and unexpected turns. This box is just a jumping-off point, a tidy summary of a profound trove of unparalleled music, and I genuinely hope you continue to explore the wonderful world of Cadet. Thanks for listening. You've seen sad times Your eyes have told me so think that I don't know, but there'll be glad times. Just you wait and see, and I'll be your sunrise if you lean on me. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is hosted, written, and produced by Steven Anderson. It's executive produced by Andrew Winnestorfer, and it's produced and edited by Jim Hankey from the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. A special thank you to Marshall Chess for being so generous with his time and for helping with this podcast and the liner notes, because without him, this box wouldn't have happened and these albums wouldn't have been made in the first place. So thank you, Marshall, for your contribution to music history. And thank you again for your help making this project a reality. And we leave you, as we always do, with this. Listen to more Eddie Fisher. Are you still there? Are you still listening? Are you in your car? Are you in your kitchen doing dishes? You're probably wondering, what's next for VMP Anthology? I'm here to give you the information my friends, as we always do at the end of these seasons of the VMP Anthology podcast. As you know by now, our next box is Miles Davis, The Electric Years. It's AAA. It's all of the big Miles Davis albums that you want on vinyl, the ones that are really expensive. We're giving them to you all in one box that looks awesome. There still might be copies left, I'm not really sure at this point. I'm recording this before it goes on sale. But if there are copies, make sure you go buy them. Support Vinyl Me, please. Support this podcast, which will have a Miles Davis season coming next. Then you're probably thinking, hey, maybe Impulse is finally coming. The long-rumored Impulse box set is finally coming. It is. But it's not the next anthology after Miles Davis. You might think, Three jazz boxes in a row. Wrong. We're not doing three in a row. We're doing two. And then there's this one that I'll give you a hint for. And then it will finally be Impulse. You will finally be able to get your grubby hands on the box set that we have all been the most excited for. You have all been the most excited for. It's coming. I promise you. It's coming this summer. Press at the VMP plant. Our plant's getting spun up. They're going to start making it. Coming soon. But... There is the anthology before then that I need to give you the hint for that I have been dancing around low these last 65 seconds. So here that is. The next VMP anthology is a country-focused anthology. And this artist 
is not sure that Hank would have done it this way. That's it for now. We'll see you next season when we cover Miles Davis.